You're listening to the Northwestern Campus Ministry Podcast from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Northwestern Campus Ministry exists to send students out as those rooted, built up, and established in Christ for God's glory and for the sake of the world. Thanks for listening and enjoy this recent message from our Christian Formation Program. We're going to actually get to hear from C.S. Lewis himself, all right? And so I want to invite you to imagine for the next 20 to 25 minutes that you are in a different time and place, okay? We're going to have a performed monologue, and this different time and place is 1963, and imagine that you are in a large church in London. And so today, right now, um, Professor Lewis, he's going to dive into challenging topics surrounding grief, things like love, pain, anxiety, suffering, and evil. And so without further ado, would you actually please join me in welcoming C.S. Lewis to the stage? And a hearty thank you to all parties involved for offering me such a kind invitation to speak this morning. As you have just heard, my topics this morning are love, grief, pain, anxiety, and prayer. Because time is short this morning, I shall dive into deep waters immediately. In summing up the law and the prophets, our Lord offered us two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart, all of thy soul, and all of thy mind. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love. Love is indeed that emotion and ultimately that act of will that may carry us closest to God. But love can carry us away from God as well. There is no denying that eros, what we call being in love, has a godlike quality because it is very much like love himself. Indeed, it is an image or a foretaste of what we are all to become to all of human beings around us if love is to reign in us without a rival. But it is the grandeur of Eros wherein the seas of danger lie, for in that grandeur we may think that we hear the voice of God himself. The total commitment of Eros, the self-resignation of Eros may make it Seem as if we are hearing a voice from the eternal world. But Eros alone cannot be the voice of God. If you commit yourself entirely, surrender yourself entirely to Eros, Eros can become a sort of demon, rebellious against all claims of God or man that would, would disagree with him. Therefore, of all the natural loves, it is Eros that is most prone to demand our worship. Thus, transforming being in love into a 
a sort of religion. Question. If Eros, our love of the earthly beloved, and our love of God come into conflict, what, what are we to do? Now, as our Christian duties are concerned, the question of whether we love the earthly beloved or God more is not a question of the comparative intensity of two feelings. The question is, if we are presented with an alternative, which comes first? Which do we put first? God summons our natural loves to become modes of charity, agape in the Greek, and that is the highest form of love. Unaided, our natural loves can love only that which is naturally lovable, only that which is intrinsically lovable. But when divine love resides within us, we are enabled to love that which is not naturally lovable. We are enabled to love our enemies, criminals, even those who look down upon us and mistreat us. Of course, to love, one must become vulnerable. Love anything or anyone and your heart will surely be wrung and perhaps it will be broken. If you would have your heart remain completely intact, love no one, love nothing. Avoid all entanglements and then <clears throat> place your heart in the coffin of your selfishness. But be aware that in that coffin, safe, dark, and without air, your heart will change. Your heart will not only become unbreakable, it will become impenetrable. And ultimately, irredeemable. Seven years ago, 1956, I fell in love with and I married Joy Davidman, an American poet who suffered greatly in America with her first husband, her first marriage, an abuse of an alcoholic husband. That very same year, in 1956, we discovered that Joy had cancer. The prognosis was grim. But to the surprise of the doctors, less than one year later, Joy had miraculously recovered and we enjoyed three more glorious years together before she succumbed to the disease in the summer of 1960. I am so very happy for the love that I found with joy, a love that had passed me by in my youth, in my middle age, 
but the grief, the despair that I felt in the months following her death seemed to me at times more than I could bear. During those months, I kept a journal of my thoughts and my feelings. At times, I felt as if God had abandoned me. And at other times, I was very angry with God. That time in my life was a terrible internal spiritual trial. But I recovered from it with the stronger and deeper, a deeper faith. Very early on, I wrote, Meanwhile, where is God? When you are happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you will be, or so it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and bolting and double bolting on the inside. After that, silence. Several pages later, my anger with God reaches a crescendo. They tell me that she is happy now because she is in God's hands. She's in peace. But if so, she was in God's hands all the time. And I know that what God's hands did to her here, what chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers she and I offered and all the false hopes we had. Hopes encouraged, even forced upon us by false diagnoses by strange remissions, by one temporary recovery that might have wronged us a miracle. Step by step, we were led up the garden path. Time after time, when he seemed to be most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. It took me but a day to realize that such words were a shout, a scream, the senseless writhings of a man, myself, who could not come to terms with the fact that there is nothing to do about suffering except to suffer it. When I came to realize that, the door to God was no longer slammed shut. Had my own internal reiterated cries slammed that door in my face? Those times when the human soul contains nothing but our own urgent cries and needs are those times when even perhaps God cannot help us because we have become like the drowning man who cannot be helped because all that he does 
is he clutches and he grabs. To lose one's spouse is like having one's leg amputated. You may recover from the wound, but from that day forward, not a day will go by when you do not recover the leg that you have lost. But I did recover from my wound. And as I did, I remembered some words that I had written some 20 years earlier, one of the first books that I wrote after becoming a Christian, a book entitled, The Problem of Pain. In this context, pain refers not only to our physical pain, but to those times in our life when we are caught up in sorrow, fear, suffering, and grief. I wrote then, God whispers to us in our pleasure. He speaks to us in our conscience. But God shouts to us in our pain. Without a doubt, pain is unmasked and unmistakable evil. And we cannot avoid it in this fallen world of ours. But through God's mysterious redemptive purposes, pain can become God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Without a doubt, pain is God's megaphone, is a terrible instrument, for it can lead to everlasting rebellion on the part of the human soul against God. But pain does plant the flag of truth into the human soul, declaring unto it that it is not self-sufficient. Please do not misunderstand me. I am not suggesting that pain is not painful. Pain hurts. It hurts. That is what the word means. Suffering. Suffering is never good in and of itself. But what is good in any painful experience is the possibility that the sufferer shall gain strength and fortitude through such tribulations. The Christian doctrine of suffering, I believe, teaches us very, something very important about this world in which we live. The settled, everlasting happiness that we all desire. God withholds it from us because of the fallen nature of this world. We are never, never fully safe in this world of ours. Never fully safe. But we do enjoy plenty of fun and some moments of ecstasy. On this long journey of life, God provides us with some very pleasant inns. But he does not encourage us to mistake those inns for our one eternal home. 
I have just finished a book on prayer. Just last month, it is to be called Letters to Malcolm. And since it is fresh on my mind, I shall spend the final few minutes of my talk this morning with a few thoughts on prayer and a few thoughts on anxiety along the way. The New Testament contains some very strong promises submitting that whatever we pray for in faith, we shall invariably receive. Mark 11.24 is the most staggering promise of all. How can such promises be reconciled? With A, the observable facts, and B, our Lord's Prayer at Gethsemane. And the universally accepted notion that all prayers of petition are to be accompanied by the phrase, if it be thy will. Concerning the observable facts, no amount of evasion is possible. Every war, every famine, every plague is a monument to a petitionary prayer that was not answered. On this very night in England alone, thousands upon thousands of people will be facing that very thing against which they have been praying, praying that they will be relieved of it. On this very night, pouring out their very souls in prayer. They have not, but the door has not been opened. They have sought, but they have not found. It seems to me that the kind of promises that we find in verses like Mark 11.24 refer to a kind of faith or a degree of faith that very, very few believers ever experience. It is my sincere hope that our Heavenly Father accepts a far inferior degree of faith. Indeed, I am convinced that even our Lord, Jesus Christ, felt no such assurances when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our Lord felt great anxiety when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It reveals, I think, that anxiety is a, is a part of God's will and a part of our human destiny. The perfect man, the holiest of all petitioners, felt great anxiety when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So why should not we also, at times, feel anxiety? For the servant is not to be greater than the master. Some Christians think that being a Christian should mean the end of all our anxieties, the end of all of our doubts and the end of all of our questions. I very strongly reject such a view of Christianity. Our anxieties are not sins. 
They are afflictions. So, it behooves us to realize that those anxieties, asking those questions, may very well lead to a deeper understanding of God and a stronger faith. And finally, I ask us to consider the amazing mystery of prayer itself. The possibility of communication between the little hairless biped that we call a human being and the incomprehensible, all-encompassing being that underlies all phenomena, all space and all time. Prayer is either sheer illusion or somehow, somehow, it is personal contact between incomplete persons and the complete concrete person. Prayers of petition, that is prayers in which we ask for things, should be a very small part of our prayers. Confession and penitence, those are the threshold of prayer. The adoration of God, that is the sanctuary of prayer. The enjoyment of God, the pleasure of God, the vision of God and the presence of God. These are the bread and the wine of prayer. The very act of prayer changes us profoundly because we reveal ourselves to God. We open up, we reveal our true selves to Him. And He, in turn, shows Himself to us by descending to us as the person in Him. And in a sense, He speaks to us as an I. When we, in all truth, paradoxically, refer to Him as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Thank you. Can we, uh, can we thank Dr. Radiker, a professor emeritus from Anderson University. He's done over 600 of these one-person performances since 1991. And so it was a joy to have C.S. Lewis with us this morning, wasn't it? One more time. Can we thank uh, Dr. Radiker? Now you know Dr. Radiker, uh, three familiar faces joining me on stage right now. We're just going to continue the conversation. No doubt for C.S. Lewis, brilliant mind, asking and wrestling with big concepts. We heard this morning starting with love, ending in prayer. But for C.S. Lewis, so much of how he wrestled through, all of what he wrestled through, it really became so vivid. 
um, when, uh, when he lost a loved one, his, his very own wife, Joy. And so three dear friends, um, leaders at Northwestern who have experienced loss, I just want to uh, introduce you to, to all three of them. So we have Dr. Hanyan Kao, assistant professor in business, uh, Julie Elliott, uh, vice president for student life here at Northwestern, and then Tim Chernagel, uh, Julie and Tim are alumni, and Tim's a, a parent to a few recent alumni, SSP advisor, and also a um, longtime missionary in Spain. So for Hanya and Julie and Tim, can you join me in welcoming, welcoming them? And so when we talk about suffering, it's broad, right? Um, C.S. Lewis was just scratching at it. Um, we kind of had an email exchange about just how broad suffering um, is for the human experience. But as with Joy, C.S. Lewis's wife, um, there's something about losing a loved one um, that um, makes, makes suffering just so vivid and so close. And um, I was curious if the three of you would be willing to share um, just about a time uh, of loss and also um, in that season of loss, um, and maybe even if that season carries to right now, um, how is it, how has loss shaped your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? So um, it was summer 2019. Um, I learned that suffering great pains and she was diagnosed with something else. Um, in the final week in May, uh, my son was born on the Tulip Festival. The first day of the Tulip Festival, my, my family told me that they found that uh, my mother's cancer was back. It was first few years ago, breast cancer, but now bone cancer. So um, a week later, I have a newborn at home. Um, the newborn does not have a passport. So I had to leave my wife and my newborn, and I, I took my daughter back home to Taiwan. For the next seven months, uh, uh, excuse me, the, for the next seven weeks, uh, the whole summer, uh, I take my daughter, just go to the hospital every day to see my mother, to be with her. Uh, my siblings and I, my in-laws and I, we, we made a good team. Every day we, we go there just to take care of her, um, be with her. We took care of the food, medicine, medication. We moved her to do the radio uh, therapy, uh, the money things, everything. Um, and during those time, my mother, my, mo my mom was the, the first Christian in my family. So we, the, the, the siblings, my brother and my sister and I, we were the, she's the most influential figure in, in, our, in our faith. And during this time, she never protested. She never complained. She remained the most worshipful person in our family. And, but still, it is, we, we wanted my, my, my son to, to, come, to come home to, to see her. It almost became a race between my mother's life and my son's passport. Um, July 1st, 
my wife told me that they got the passport the next day. They got on the airplane. Two days later, it was my birthday. They made it to the hospital. It was a great day. Uh, we all gathered together. Uh, we had a great time. My mom was very happy. Everybody was laughing. We took a lot of pictures. Two days later, my mom lost all the ability to, to communicate. Another two days later, she went back to be with the Lord. Yeah. So that's my journey. And um, I, I always feel that my mother was the person who taught me how to live a Christian life, but she also taught me how to die. When I think about, ooh, sorry, it's very loud. When I think about grief in my own life, um, two, two really things come to mind for me. One is going through the experience of infertility, um, that there's a sort of grief that you experience every month um, that you experience infertility when there's another month that there's no pregnancy. And my husband and I went through 10 years of that. Um, and we're very blessed finally then to adopt our daughter in 2008 um, as an infant. And the day that we first talked to our daughter's birth mother, this was two months before she was born, was also the day that my oldest brother Greg died of a brain tumor. And so I have seen in my life kind of this interweaving of like the gift of life and then the loss of life. And that was one powerful example. Um, so our daughter came. It was a huge blessing. Um, but I, even when she was born, we knew that my mother um, had leukemia and had a limited amount of time. Um, and so um, fast forward to 2012, uh, my mother had been uh, suffering with leukemia for about seven years, which was kind of the timeline we were initially given of to expect that she could live between five to ten years. And she lived seven years, and we were really grateful for that. And I came, I was living in Pennsylvania at the time, came back to Orange City to be with my mom as she was dying. Um, and it's such an experience to... Um, to sit vigil with someone who is preparing um, to move from this life to the next. And I feel like when I look back on my life, in some ways, I feel like pre-losing my mother, and then I'll say talk in a minute about losing my dad, that's kind of the before, and my life since losing them feels a little bit like the after because so much has shifted in the way I think about life, I think about myself, and just my everyday existence. So my mom passed away in 2013, uh, 2012 in December, um, and my dad was still here in Orange City, living here, and quite to our surprise, two months later, my dad got very sick. And um, my dad had always been a picture of health, um, and so we kind of, he was 84 at the time. We expected, you know, he'd live well into his 90s. And um, he went into the hospital. Uh, he was visiting my brother in Arizona, uh, went into the hospital there. And um, I ended up flying out to see him in Arizona. And it was, became clear to me while I was there that my time with him there was going to be the end of our time, that, that I was going to have to say goodbye to him. Um, and so uh, to about a little over three months after losing my mom, I also sat vigil with my dad um, and said goodbye to him. And actually, this past Sunday was the 10-year anniversary of my dad's passing. And so um, 
I think, you know, losing your parents is something that you're all going to experience, and some of you I know already have. Um, and I think I hadn't fully appreciated before I went through it just how deep that loss is. Um, for me, when I think about who are the people who know me the best and who are always rooting for me, right, who are there for me no matter what, it's my husband, my mother, and my father. And so when you, quick, when you go in three months' time from three to one, you know, there's just such tremendous loss in that and a feeling of being sort of orphaned and all, all of that that goes with it. And I think it has really sensitized me to grief in general um, about, not that all grief is the same, but it, it really has made me be very honest with myself and with those around me about the loss that you don't get over quickly. So this past Sunday is the 10 year anniversary of my dad's death. Went to church, we sang all is well with my soul. And I just said to my husband walking in, I'm going to cry, so just be prepared. <laughs> and my son was there, and he looked up at me, and he knew what was going on. And so I, I learned, I had to, I've learned that grief is very real and is not fast. Um, it's not something you get over. It's just a sort of present absence that you have to learn to live with. Um, so that's a little bit about my, my loss. My loss has to deal with uh, my daughter, Hannah, um, who died at the age of 19. Uh, three years ago, we came back uh, to Orange City. Uh, We've been living in Spain for the last 20 years. And um, our oldest two kids were here at Northwestern. And it was just, I was having a blast. <laughs> it was a great year. Um, but our youngest daughter, Hannah, was trying to figure out life. And... Uh, and we, uh, she had taken a turn. It looked like she was doing a lot better. Um, she was getting used to living in the United States. Um, she did not want to be here. She wanted to be in Spain. And uh, we asked her to give it a try for a while. Um, and uh, anyway, one weekend we got together. We were uh, trying to celebrate a Spanish holiday uh, that doesn't get celebrated here in Spain or here in the United States. And we got together on a weekend. We just had an absolute blast, telling stories, playing games. Um, and it was just really exciting to see Hannah come into her own. Uh, she had recently started college uh, down in Ankeny at DMAC. And, um, and yeah, then we took off for the weekend. My wife and I had a trip, and so we took off. The next day after um, being together, Hannah got up. Uh, did a test online, and then she drove to Ankeny. And down by Remsen, there's an intersection. Um, she was in a car accident there and was killed immediately. So it just turned our world completely upside down. What was really hard um, is that my wife and I were down in North Carolina then, and so my daughter had to receive the news um, before we did. And because of weather, we couldn't make it back for like three days before they allowed flights out. So my kids were here having to deal with the loss of their sister. And, uh, and my wife and I were desperately trying to get back. So I think looking at the journey and what was so excruciating, I think right then was um, as Christians, uh, we saw our daughter really struggle with her faith um, as a 
little girl, elementary student. She received Christ, and it looked so real. And oh my goodness, it was she was living for God. But then she hit her teenage years. And in Spain, being a Christian as a teenager is super hard. And um, our oldest kids made it through, barely. <laughs> but Hannah really, really struggled. And um, so with her passing away, um, my wife and I and, our, and her siblings, we were all a bit tormented, like, where is she at? Is she in, is she in heaven? Is she in hell? Where, where, where is she, Lord? And, uh, and my wife can tell you I took a lot of walks here in Orange City. I pretty much walked the entire, every street of Orange City, um, a lot of long walks, and crying out to God. And um, God spoke to my wife and showed her things that, you know, I'm, women, I think, are connected better to God than us men. <laughs> and, um, and she had this assurance that God, in his mercy, had taken our daughter to heaven, had taken her home. I didn't have that for a good long while. And I remember one day waking up, and it was just, Hannah was on my mind. And I could not get her off of my mind. It was just a bad day. And so I drove down to Remsen and um, drove into a parking lot right where the intersection was. And um, as I drove into the parking lot, a song came on the radio. And I, but I parked the car. I shut off the car. And then it was just like I felt God saying, Tim, you need to turn the car back on. You need to listen to that song. And so I... I turn on the radio, and it's the song Rescue by Lauren Daigle. And in it, the lyrics go something like, um, I hear your whisper, I hear your SOS, and I'm going to send out an army in the middle of the darkest night, and I will rescue you. And God just so clearly spoke to me in that moment, saying, you know, Tim, right here, I'm looking out right where she passed away, and uh, I heard, you know, just God saying to me, Tim, you think that this is the place where I took your daughter, where you lost your daughter, but that isn't true. This is the place where I rescued your daughter from all the sin that she had in the past, from all the crap that she was dealing with right now in life, and from all the problems that she was going to face in the future, and all the doubts that she was dealing with as a teenager, I rescued her right here in my mercy. And it was just a powerful moment. Um, still have bad days, but the one thing that I, I think God has been taking me on, we have this idea, we think, who's going to be saved? Who's not going to be saved? Who's going to be in heaven? Who's not going to be in heaven? And God has completely like made me rethink what that might look like, and just how great his mercy is when you think of the prodigal son or you think of the criminal seen uh, um, on a cross next to Jesus, and Jesus says, today you're going to be in paradise with me. And I uh, say, I'm still getting to know God and understanding how great his mercy is for us. Thank you, Tim, for sharing. Um, Julie, question for you specifically. Um, when you think about just journeying through grief and loss, um, how has it changed the way you look at others or even the way you've, you've looked at your relationship with God 
And I thought you said something really insightful earlier this week, um, and just a quick line to me, but just, you know, that tendency to explain. But, yeah, I don't know if you'd dive into that a little bit. I think um, going through loss teaches you about your own finitude and your own, like, creatureliness, um, which is a really important lesson because I think we always want to imagine that we're, we're peop- we are in control of life. Um, and one of the ways we try to be in control of life is when we encounter suffering, we want to explain it, right? We want it to make sense. Um, Kate Bowler wrote a really good book called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved, um, which talks about her encountering this compulsion that she experiences other people when they find out that at 35 she was diagnosed with an incurable cancer. And she talks about three ways we try to make sense of suffering. One is we try to minimize it. You know, we say, well, at least it's not this, right? At least it's not that. Um, And other times we try to solve it. We try to say, well, you can fix the suffering by doing this. Or we try to explain it. We try to figure out what is the big lesson God has for me in this. And I think it's really important, I've learned, and I think it's important for all of us to recognize that we might not understand why the suffering happens and that there are some things that are beyond words. And when you encounter suffering in your own life or when you encounter someone who is experiencing deep suffering, that to, to, to model the way of Christ and just be present, right? We, we preach Christ crucified, right? The, the Lord who suffers and who is present with us, um, who, who can be there and not have to explain or try to control the suffering, but to, who is with us in it. Um, and those are some of the truths that I think are really important. One of the things that I find to be powerful is um, that I think we've maybe lost in Protestantism. You know, in the Catholic Church, you always see Jesus on the cross, right? The crucifix. And you're reminded that we worship a God who suffers, And in Protestantism, we always have the empty cross, which, of course, the empty cross is a beautiful testimony to resurrection, to the good news. But it's if we forget the suffering, right, and only focus on the good news, if we forget Good Friday and only focus on Easter, we're missing um, part of the truth that God offers to us. Thanks, Julie. Hanya, and I'm curious... um, you were sharing with me even a couple of years ago, um, but I, I, I was just curious how how in seasons of loss, and particularly as you reflect on your mom teaching you how to live and also teaching you how to die, as you said, um, how have you experienced a deeper intimacy with the Lord um, in, in the midst of that and these in these this season of loss and the continued season of loss? I will go back to the hospital. I will go back to the bedside. Um, there, there were many great moments that we, we reckon, uh, you know, we, we forgive each other, we, we celebrate each other. But one of the most, most beautiful moments that, that we had with my mother uh, in the hospital was every Sunday, my, my siblings and I took turns just leading a mini Sunday worship in, in the hospital room. We we didn't. I, I mean, we, we pray a lot of a lot of times. We pray for her pain. We pray for everything. But on the Sunday service, we we just wanted to focus on God. We just wanted to. We pick a theme. We pick uh, God's characteristic, and sing about love. Sing about God's hope. 
where we 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 think、uh, we sing about God's faithfulness, His kindness, kindness, and that that just made me focus back on God. I don't know. I I don't know how to why we do this. Maybe it's it's not our strategic wisdom. It's not. Maybe it's just out of survival. That it it is the only way clinging to God. That to 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 keep us going, yeah. So, it's、oh, beautiful. Thank you, Hanya and、um, Tim. Just curious, and this will this is all the time we have.、Um, just one last question:、uh, the role of suffering and grief, and how Jesus changes your framework. You kind of started、uh, getting to that towards the end, but、um, I don't know any anything to add or, or dive into、uh, briefly in regards to how. How? What is the role of suffering and grief? But also, how does Jesus change the way we、yeah. think about suffering and grief? Yeah,、um, I'll just say,、uh, try to be brief, because、um, you know Jesus said to his disciples not too much before he went to the cross. He said, you know, in this world you will have trouble,、um, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, if Jesus said that.、Um, That we're going to have trouble. Well, he's God, so yeah, we're going to have it. <laughs>、um, but somehow, I think we as Christians think that we might be exempt from it. That we hope that we won't really have to suffer that much、um, pain or trouble or whatever. And that's not true. I think part of life to live is to go through suffering. At some point in your life, you're not already going through it. You will have to suffer, and and it's not something that we should try to avoid to go around, because it's it's just going to happen. And、um, and to for some people, it happens to a, a worse degree than others. And I, I've learned so much from my wife in this because she has a chronic illness, and、um, it's something she never thought, ever dreamt that she would have. And there's times where it's at weeks she's not feeling well, and she's kind of just put under. And she will say,、um, "Tim, I thank God for my illness because if I hadn't got this illness, I would have just kept doing life the way I always do it." And a lot of that was depending on myself rather than depending on God. And、um, she would say, very frankly, I now know God. I was a Christian all my life, but now I know God because of this illness. And there's something about suffering and pain that makes you go to another level of getting to know God that is really beautiful. It's not fun, but it is beautiful. And I think that's what I would say. Yeah. Hey, can we thank these three beloved people for sharing bits of their story?